Now that you've got the setup, I must tell you that my reason for choosing the Code of the Worcesters is not to pursue the labyrinthine affairs pertaining to the cow creamer, but for the sake of one of the most bizarre of Woodhouse's characters, loosely based, one must suppose, on Oswald Mosley, and that is Sir Roderick Spode. We meet him first when Bertie goes into the antique shop on his errand for his Aunt Dahlia. The first person he meets is Old Pop Bassett, in person, himself, not a picture. There is a tough bulldog strain in the Worcesters which has often caused comment. It came out in me now. A weaker man, no doubt, would have tiptoed from the scene and headed for the horizon, but I stood firm. After all, I felt the dead past was the dead past. By forking out that fiver, I had paid my debt to society and I had nothing to fear from this shrimp-faced son of a what-what. So I remained where I was, giving him the surreptitious once-over. My entry had caused him to turn and shoot a quick look at me, and it, at intervals since then he had been peering at me sideways. It was only a question of time, I felt, before the hidden cord in his memory would be touched, and he would realise that the slight, distinguished-looking figure leaning on its umbrella in the background was an old acquaintance. And now it was plain that he was hep, and the bird in charge of the shop had potted off into an inner room, and he came across to where I stood, giving me the up and down through his windshields. Hello, hello, he said. I know you, young man. I never forget a face. You came up before me once. I bowed slightly. Not twice. Good. Learned your lesson, huh? Going straight now? Capital. Now, let me see. What was it? Don't tell me. It's coming back. Of course, yes. Bag snatching. Oh, no, no, no. It was bag snatching, he repeated firmly. I remember it distinctly. Still, it's all past and done with now. We've turned over a new leaf, have we not? Splendid. Roderick, come over here. This is most interesting. His buddy, who had been examining a salver, put it down and joined the party. He was, as I had already been able to perceive, a breathtaking cove. About seven feet in height and swathed in a played ulster which made him look about six feet across, he caught the eye and arrested it. It was as if nature had intended to make a gorilla and had changed its mind at the last moment. But it wasn't merely the sheer expanse of the bird that impressed. Close to what you noticed more was his face, which was square and powerful and slightly moustached towards the centre. His gaze was keen and piercing. I don't know if you've ever seen those pictures in the papers of dictators with tilted chins and blazing eyes, inflaming the populace with fiery words on the occasion of the opening of a new skittle alley, but that was what he reminded me of. Roderick, said old Bassett, I want you to meet this fella. Here's a case which illustrates exactly what I have so often maintained, that prison life does not degrade, that it does not warp the character and prevent a man rising on stepping stones of his dead self to higher things. I recognised the gag, one of Jeeves's, and wondered where he could have heard it. Look at this chap. I gave him three months not long ago for snatching bags at railway stations, and it's quite evident that his term in jail has had the most excellent effect on him. He is reformed. Oh, yes, said the dictator. Granted that it wasn't quite, oh, yeah, I still didn't like the way he spoke. He was looking at me with a nasty sort of supercilious expression. 
I remember thinking that he would have been the ideal man to sneer at a cow creamer. What makes you think he has reformed? Of course he's reformed. Look at him. Well-groomed, well-dressed, decent member of society. What his present walk in life is, I do not know, but it is perfectly obvious that he's no longer stealing bags. What are you doing now, young man? Stealing umbrellas, apparently, said the dictator. I notice he's got yours. And I was on the point of denying this accusation hotly. I had indeed already opened my lips to do so, when there suddenly struck me like a blow on the upper maxillary from a sock stuffed with wet sand, the realisation that there was a lot in it. I mean to say, I remembered now that I had come out without my umbrella, and yet here I was, beyond any question of doubt, umbrellaed to the gills. What had caused me to take up the one that had been leaning against a 17th century chair, I cannot say, unless it was the primeval instinct which makes a man without an umbrella reach out for the nearest one in sight, like a flower groping toward the sun. A manly apology seemed in order. I made it as the blunt instrument changed hands. I say I'm frightfully sorry. Old Bassett said he was too. Sorry and disappointed. He said it was this sort of thing that made a man sick at heart. The dictator had to shove his oar in. He asked if he should call a policeman, and old Bassett's eyes gleamed for a moment. Being a magistrate makes you love the idea of calling policemen. It's like a tiger tasting blood. But he shook his head. No, Roderick, I couldn't. Not today. Happiest day of my life. The dictator passed his lips, as if feeling that the better the day, the better the deed. But, but listen, I bleated. It was a mistake. Ah, said the dictator. I, I thought that umbrella was mine. That, said old Bassett, is the fundamental trouble with you, my man. You are totally unable to distinguish between meum and tuum. Well, I'm not going to have you arrested this time, but I advise you to be very careful. Come, Roderick. They biffed out, the dictator pausing at the door to give me another look and say, ha, again. So there's the introduction to Sir Roderick. Then Bertie has to deal with the question of the cow creamer, and that is concluded with the following exchange. Oh, tut, 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 I said. Oh, dear, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 I don't think much of this, I said curling and clicking freely. All wrong. All wrong? All wrong. Modern Dutch. Modern Dutch? He may have frothed at the mouth, or he may not, I couldn't be sure, but the agony of spirit was obviously intense. What do you mean, modern Dutch? It's 18th century English. Look at the hallmark. I can't see any hallmark. You blind? Here, take it outside in the street. It's lighter there. Oh, right oh, I said, and started for the door, sauntering at first in a languid sort of way, like a connoisseur a bit bored at having his time wasted. I say at first, because I had only taken a couple of steps when I tripped over the cat, and you can't combine tripping over cats with languid sauntering. Shifting abruptly into high, I shot out of the door like someone wanted by the police making for the car after a smash-and-grab raid. The cow creamer flew from my hands, and it was a lucky thing that I happened to barge into a fellow citizen outside, or I should have taken a toss in the gutter. Well, 
Not absolutely lucky, as a matter of fact, for it turned out to be Sir Watkin Bassett. He stood there goggling at me with horror and indignation behind the pince-nez, and you could almost see him totting up the score on his fingers. First bag-snatching, I mean to say, then umbrella-pinching, and now this. His whole demeanour was that of a man confronted with a last straw. Call a policeman, Roderick, he cried, skipping like the high hills. The dictator sprang to the task. Police, he bawled. Police, yipped old Bassett up in the tenor Police, roared the dictator, taking the bass. In the next passage, we catch up with Bertie at Totley Towers, home of Sir Watkin Bassett, CVE, whither Bertie has been summoned by Gussie Finknottle because of a misunderstanding that has occurred between him and Madeline, daughter of Sir Watkin. Gussie stood silent for a moment. I could see that he was marshalling the facts. He took off his spectacles and polished them. A week ago, Bertie, he began, my affairs had reached a crisis. I was faced by an ordeal, the mere prospect of which blackened the horizon. I discovered that I would have to make a speech at the wedding breakfast. Well, naturally. I know, but for some reason I had not foreseen it, and the news came as a stunning blow. And shall I tell you why I was so overcome by stark horror at the idea of making a speech at the wedding breakfast? It was because Roderick Spode and Sir Watkin Bassick would be in the audience. Do you know Sir Watkin intimately? Not very. He once fined me five quid at his police court. Well, you can take it from me that he's a hard nut and he strongly objects to having me as a son-in-law. For one thing, he would have liked Madeline to marry Spode, who, I may mention, has loved her since she was so high. Oh, yes, I said, courteously concealing my astonishment that anyone except a certified boob like himself could deliberately love this girl. Yes, but apart from the fact that she wanted to marry me, he didn't want to marry her. He looks upon himself as a man of destiny, you see, and feels that marriage would interfere with his mission. He takes a line through Napoleon. I felt that before proceeding further, I must get the lowdown on this spode. I didn't follow all this man of destiny stuff. How do you mean, his mission? Is he someone special? Don't you ever read the papers? Roderick Spode is the founder and head of the Saviors of Britain, a fascist organisation better known as the Black Shorts. His general idea, if he doesn't get knocked on the head with a bottle in one of the frequent brawls in which he and his followers indulge, is to make himself a dictator. Well, I am blowed. I was astounded at my own keenness of perception. The moment I had set eyes on Spode, if you remember, I had said to myself, what ho, a dictator! and a dictator he had proved to be. I couldn't have made a better shot if I'd been one of those detectives who see a chap walking along the street and deduce that he's a retired manufacturer of puppet valves named Robinson with rheumatism in one arm living at Clapham. Well, I'm dashed. I thought he was something of the sort. That chin, those eyes. And for the matter of fact, that moustache. By the way, when you say shorts, you mean shirts, of course. 
No. By the time Spode formed his association, there were no shirts left. He and his inherents wear black shorts. Footer bags. Footer bags, you mean? Yes. How perfectly foul. Yes. Bare knees? Bare knees. Golly! Yes. A thought struck me, so revolting, that I nearly dropped my gasper. Does old Bassett wear black shorts? No, he isn't a member of the Saviours of Britain. Then how, how does he come to be mixed up with Spode? I met them going around London like a couple of sailors on shore leave. We jump forward to a point where we find Bertie slumped against a wall. We won't worry too much about why he's there. But he sat there stunned. Just how long, I don't know, but it was a goodish time. Winged creatures of the night barged into me, but I gave them little attention. It was not till a voice suddenly spoke a couple of feet or so above my bowed head that I came out of the coma. Good evening, Worcester, said the voice. I looked up. The cliff-like mass looming over me was Roderick Spode. I suppose even dictators have their chummy moments when they put their feet up and relax with the boys, but it was plain from the outset that if Roderick Spode had a sunnier side, he had not come with any idea of exhibiting it now. His manner was curt. One sensed the absence of the bonhomous note. I should like a word with you, Worcester. Uh, yes? I've been talking to Sir Watkin Bassett, and he has told me the whole story of the cow creamer. Uh, uh, yes? And we know why you are here. Oh, yes? Oh, stop saying, oh, yes, you miserable worm, and listen to me. Many chaps might have resented his tone. I did myself, as a matter of fact, but you know how it is. There are some fellows you are right on your toes to tick off when they call you a miserable worm, others not quite so much. Oh, yes, he said, saying it himself. It's perfectly plain to us why you are here. You've been sent by your uncle to steal his cow creamer for him. You needn't trouble to deny it. I found you with the thing in your hands this afternoon, and now we learn your aunt is arriving, the master of the vultures, eh? He paused a moment, then repeated, the master of the vultures, as if he thought pretty highly of it as a gag. I couldn't see that it was so very hot myself. Well, what I came to tell you, Worcester, was that you were being watched, watched closely. And if you are caught stealing that cow creamer, I can assure you that you will go to prison. You need entertain no hope that Sir Watkin will shrink from creating a scandal. He will do his duty as a citizen and a justice of the peace. Here, he laid a hand upon my shoulder, and I can't remember when I have experienced anything more unpleasant. Apart from what Jeeves would have called the symbolism of the action, he had a grip like the bite of a horse. Did you say, oh, yes? he asked. Uh, 
Oh, no, I assured him. Good. Now, what you're saying to yourself, no doubt, is that you will not be caught. You imagine that you and this precious aunt of yours will be clever enough between you to steal the cow creamer without being detected. It will do you no good, Worcester. If the thing disappears, however cunningly you and your female accomplice may have covered your traces, I shall know where it has gone. And I shall immediately beat you to a jelly. To a jelly! He repeated, rolling the words round his tongue as if they were vintage port. Have you got that clear? Oh, quite. You are sure you understand? De definitely. Splendid. Mm -hmm.